HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. For more information, visit mofad.org. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On the show today, we have Georgette Moser Petrosky and Thea Lieberman, who are in studio to talk about the new book by Sasha Petrosky and Georgette called Regarding Cocktails. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Georgette, obviously you were married to Sasha and Theo, you worked with him, um, at Milk and Honey and still pull one night a week at Dutch Kills, correct? Uh, yeah, that is correct. Uh, I want to go back a little bit before we get into the book. Um, obviously people know about Sasha's influence in there, but I thought that the Times had a really good write-up as kind of the man before the legend. Um, they had a, when I started reading the book, it kind of seemed he just appeared behind the bar, but I think it might be good for people to know where he came from, his communist uh, upbringing. Uh, and the Times says, as a teenager, Sasha attended Stuyvesant High School, but dropped out. He said it had bored him to take a job in a cafe. Soon he took a cross-country bicycle trip, lived in San Francisco for a while, and joined the army, serving for three years. Back in New York, he worked at Vaughn, a bar in the East Village, and began to dream of opening a bar that would reflect his love of jazz, vintage clothing, and old-fashioned decorum. Responding to an ad in The Voice for a narrow commercial space on Eldridge Street at 800 a month, he learned that the landlord had been a friend of his in the fifth grade. This seems to be pretty typical of the way that Sasha moved through his life. Would you say so? I would say so, indeed. Um, in the early days... He was kind of a loner. I mean, there were other places. Uh, there was Angel Shares. But can you two maybe set the stage of what the cocktail scene was in 1999-2000 when Milk and Honey opened? Um, yeah, I think that... I think everybody who sort of came up in the cocktail world, there are all these series of mentors that people have, and they all sort of think that, like... You know, uh, it was... The whole cocktail revolution was started by X or started by, you know, whomever it might be. Um... And Sasha was the first person to say Angel Share was the first place to sort of do the bar that wasn't, you know, for lack of a better word, had a secret entrance or a more hidden entrance. And um, 
I think that the like the amount that what that milk and honey changed sort of the way people perceive that and the sort of how much it influenced the industry can't really be seen by almost any other bar. Right. And so what was pre-milk and honey? It was, you know, juices from a can, soda from a gun. What were people, you know, most cocktails were done for speed, you know, to drive revenue. What were the, what was the landscape um, outside of an angel share? You know, when you went to get a cocktail, what would you think, you know, the highest level could be? Or what would you normally expect? They were in a pretty sad state at that time, (laughs) from what we recall. um, uh, The Cosmopolitan, a a fine drink. uh, A classic. But but, uh, a bit overordered at that time. Um, They were, at best, uh, two-bit cocktails, uh, but they hadn't been elevated in in many years and i i think that that's what was really put at the forefront aside from you know a beautiful bar where uh, you would have rules of decorum that were a requirement before you even sat down for a cocktail um the the elevated state of of cocktails that sasha brought forth uh, can't be Underestimated. What's really interesting about the early days, too, is that when you look at this book and you kind of look at cocktail bars now, there's multiple ingredients. You, there's so many questions. People are very steeped within the lexicon. In the early days, it seemed like drinks were um, served with only a few options. Ingredients really were, weren't dive, dove into like a new lexicon was being built. How did Sasha begin to not just train his customers, but his bartenders in the methodology of serving these drinks? Well, I think the interesting thing is that you're right. And it is, in a lot of ways, I feel like gone too far in the other direction. We're now the 11-ingredient drink with three garnishes that takes 14 minutes, like we've all seen parodies of online, uh, has become a thing. And in real life. And in real life, yeah. (laughs) Um, but I think the thing that was always so amazing about the way Sasha trained people and the people that he hired was that they had this sort of like, I want to say they wanted to get, extract the most amount of flavor with the fewest amount of ingredients. It was always about just working smarter. And I think if you look at sort of like the breadth of the cocktails that have really like, you know, or modern classics, um, even riffs on modern classics, like none of them have more than five, five. It's like Italian food. Yeah, exactly. Red sauce Italian food is one of life's great pleasures. And when you worked under Sasha at that time, uh, I know the bartenders were educated, but as I mentioned, you educating the customers as someone who I got into cocktails around 2010 uh, or so, but before then they were kind of, like you said, really two bit type of drinks. How did you begin to educate customers and begin to impart the value of fresh garnishes, uh, different types of ice, and educating them in the value behind these things? I always, I mean, we juiced everything to order at Milk and Honey, um, and there was always this thing that happened when people would walk in the bar and they would go, it smells so good in here. And it's like, what's that smell? And it's like, that's what a bar is supposed to smell like. That's lemon juice and lime juice and citrus and oil. Like, it's all the things that make a bar smell great. And I think giving people, educating, 
people don't always want to feel like they're being educated. And that's the thing is like you can give somebody a drink that they have had a thousand times. And when they sit down and they're like, why is this Manhattan better than every other Manhattan I've ever had? So, I mean, it's essentially a three ingredient drink. And it's like, well, it's colder. I can tell you that like your glassware is frozen. I don't think I think that's a big thing that a lot of people forget is that milk and honey was the first bar to freeze glassware. Right, and also use the reintroduction of jiggers, the introduction of like all metal shakers. Where did Sasha get this from? Because I know you mentioned you know so so and so and mentors and everything, but the way that it just seems is that he had a different type of knowledge or a different type of perception. Where did did someone teach him, or did he just pull it from his readings and extensive research? Um, I mean, I always he was always trying to do things in the freshest way. I mean, I remember being like working Friday night service at Milk and Honey on Eldridge Street, and he had had this idea to juice ginger a la minute, which is not something anyone should do. Um, <laughs> but I loved that he was like, he's like, we're going to figure out how to do this. And we did figure it out. And then we, it was just a kind of not practical and B, it was a little bit too variable. And that was a huge thing was about the, order so much about Sasha's training was about the order of operations and how to build things in the smartest and fastest way possible while still using things like jiggers and he his service plan just made so much he I, I he just had I, tons of ideas all the time and he would workshop them until you like you were like this is crazy we're in the middle of service like i can't really be doing this right now and he'd be like we're gonna do this and he always wanted to just do it then and see how it would work and if it didn't work we'd move on but i mean a lot they worked out a lot of times what even. was i mean you, you mentioned the ginger but is there another example of something that sasha introduced where you or other fellow bartenders just went, never going to work, never going to happen, but just he, you know, came through on the other side. Sasha had this sort of... uh, Not obsession, but he really just... Nothing... If you couldn't make a drink colder, he didn't understand why. And we had these freezers at Milk and Honey on 23rd Street that had two compressors that ran outside. They ran, like, they would, like, burn the tips of your fingertips when you pulled the mixing glass. You could make a Manhattan, ice the drink, and just leave it. And, like, if you didn't touch it, like, seven minutes later, it didn't even have close to the ounce of water content you wanted to get into the drink. It was, like, it was truly crazy. Um, These freezers were, like, such a joy. And he wanted to... uh, But... So we're using big block ice. We have these crazy freezers. We're freezing all the ice. We're making sure the ice is never sweating. And he was just like, I want to have the crushed ice colder. And I was like, why do we need the crushed ice to be colder? Because think about the wash lines we could have if the crushed ice was frozen. And we went through, I mean, this was like a lot of services where we were freezing crushed ice in plastic cups so that the crushed ice was essentially being... Re- taken from the crushed ice machine and then refrozen, which was actually something he was doing with cold draft at uh, a couple of different places, which was amazing. It was, I mean, everybody's so used to using cold draft, but he would take cold draft, put it into the ice bins, and then freeze that so the ice was harder and it was colder. And it really does make it, I know, every, I've heard a lot of people say that it sounds crazy, but it makes a huge, it really does make a huge difference if you can't 
it takes a lot of time and a lot of investment and a lot of caring to run a big ice program, like where everything is big ice and you don't have an ice machine for, you know, shaken drinks and stuff like that. But double freezing cold draft really does make a huge difference. Um, but yeah, he, we, the freezing of the crushed ice was a, a fun experiment. I have to say that the um, the obsession with with ice and perfection in the freezer did not end at the bar. Um, <laughs> um, as as a spirits writer myself, I, I enjoy making cocktails at home very much so. And at the time uh, when when we were first keeping company, uh, my freezer uh, had its own ice program. I considered it. Um, it was just frozen. Shakers and frozen glasses and ice of all shapes and sizes, uh, with the exception of some homemade chicken stock, meticulously organized into Ziploc bags by date. Uh, Sasha opens my freezer and says, "Oh, Miss Mojer, uh, I see you have quite a nice program going." I said, "Oh, do you like that?" And he says, "Yes, but uh, how much do you enjoy chicken soup?" I said, "Well, uh, obviously I do. I'm making my own stock here," and uh, I, I said. I was expecting him to be impressed with the homemade stock, and he says, well, how much do you like your cocktails to taste like chicken soup? Because the flavor of the chicken soup is transferring to the ice, and what you're going to need is either a separate freezer for your stock or a separate freezer for your glassware and ice, which I thought was utterly absurd. I mean, it's New York. Our apartments are small. How could this possibly be? Uh, Did you get a second freezer, or did you get rid of the chicken stock? um, The chicken stock actually uh, went a lot faster. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The longer into our courtship, uh, he he was having a lot of chicken soup, so it never had a chance to be frozen. It was always just (laughs) there. Well, we're going to take a quick musical break, and then we're going to come back and talk about Sasha's approach to cocktails. We have a song that we think that Sasha would have liked from Eli Paperboy Reed, recorded live on Snacky Tunes, and we will be right back. Tell me that you love me, dear And you'll never, never let me go Cause even if it isn't true Oh, I promise I'll be good to you So tell me what I want to hear Oh, yeah, tell me what I need to know I don't need to believe That look that's in your eyes Telling me, darling, all those sweet, sweet lies. It doesn't matter, baby, if you mean what you say. Cause I'll keep on loving you, baby. In your way, tell me what I wanna hear. Whoa, tell me what I need to know. Tell me that you love me, dear. And you'll never, never let me go. Cause even if it isn't true Oh, I promise I'll be good to you So tell me what I want for you Oh, yeah Tell me what I need to know
There are over 50,000 Chinese-American restaurants in the U.S. That's more than three times the number of McDonald's. How did Chinese-American food become so popular? And what's the story behind their unique menu of dishes like egg rolls and General's Chicken? Brooklyn's Museum of Food and Drink is going to explain it all with our next exhibition, Chow, the Making of Chinese-American Cuisine, featuring tastings, beautiful artifacts, and live demos of a fortune cookie machine. Visit chow.mofad.org to learn more, get advanced tickets, and help us make this exhibition a reality. Again, that's the Museum of Food and Drink at chow.mofad.org. Georgette, in the book, you talk about Sasha's two favorite cocktails, which I thought were interesting definitions of the same person, the gin in it and the French 75. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the gin in it. Uh, You said it's most expressively of your husband. How so? Uh, It's a beautiful cocktail. Very simple. Two parts. Um, we, we loved this cocktail. Um, we, we pre-batched it uh, for our wedding and gave it out in mason jars with um, those classic milk and honey coops and uh, made a cocktail for two. Um, this is a, a cocktail that we would bring with us on picnics, to the movies, <laughs> to, to a lot of places. It traveled very well. And uh, there's... Um, there's even a, a shot of Sasha in, in Hey Bartender where he's making uh, the gin in it and uh, just beautifully done. Um, I'd, I'd say it's kind of hard to mess up that drink, too. It's just beautifully stirred and a, a simple flick of the wrist for the, uh, for the lemon peel. And, and you've got just absolutely beautiful cocktail. I love how you two talk about cocktails that travel well in the book, especially how to take a train cocktail. What is the secret behind a good train cocktail? <laughs> well, I, ideally it would be with the uh, gentleman carrying the bags <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and not the uh, lady carrying the bags and the cocktails on the straws and the, <laughs> and the uh, travel equipment. But um, uh, we, we would travel with, uh, with cocktails. He loved uh, the Pellegrino sodas, which you could just put with a little airplane size of, of gin um, and uh, maybe uh, top with those teensy-weensy little bottles of Angostura bitters. It's, it's really easy to travel with, with cocktails like that. And on the other side, you have the French 75, mm-hmm. which in the book, it, everyone mentions that it was his favorite drink. What, what was it that spoke to him of all the cocktails in all the world? What was the one? Why did that reach out to him? I'd love for Theo to... <laughs> to chime in on that one? <laughs> um, I mean, it's just very... It, I think people always, like, uh, associate 
you know, think about Sasha and cocktails because you kind of have to, but he also, um, I really I drink a fair amount of champagne and we always used to talk about that too. So he was actually re- really enjoyed champagne as well. And I think it's, I mean, it's about as classic as anything can get. He also liked drinks that were really s- very simple, but had a lot of flavor and that could be modified with fresh fruit. Um, which I think this French 75 lends itself really well to. The bee's knees did that as well as the business, which is essentially the same cocktail with uh, lemon versus lime. And what was Sasha's overall approach or philosophy towards cocktails and building the cocktail programs at the various bars? Once again, I think like the training aspect of how he taught us to make drinks is the most important thing. I mean... You see so many bars where people make one drink at a time, and it's just such a it's such a waste of time. He would he would get like actually would occasionally he would call me out and be like, "You just went into the freezer twice," and it's like I I know. And he, after five years or whatever, every once in a while you feel like you can break the rules a little bit, but it would just he'd just not understand why you picked up Campari twice or something. And it's true you have. It changes the way you think about how to build rounds. So if you have, like, four drinks, five drinks, whatever it is, um, we uh, five drinks I've always found is, like, the point at which people can be the most effective. The sixth drink tends to, like, exponentially add a little bit more time. Sasha always says you have a minute per drink to finish it. So if you have a round of five, you should be able to finish it in less than five minutes. Um, the sixth drink I found can take can add like a little bit more time because you're essentially looking at, you know, five silver items or if you're making five shaken drinks and it can be, your brain starts to be like, Oh, which is which. Um, but it would just add a little bit more time. So we sort of tried to rework that process when we opened milk and honey on 23rd street. Um, but we, the training process is amazing because, you know, if you make an old fashioned, you don't have to ice that drink. You can make that drink, completely forget about it, and there's no ticking clock. So you essentially make old fashions first, then you move into your stirred up drinks. So Manhattan martini, um, because you can ice them. And when you're working, especially in a big ice program, you can essentially ice it, not stir it. And you have a fair amount of time, especially if you have crushed ice living next to you. You can throw a mixing glass into crushed ice and you have as, as much time. I remember working on Eldridge Street and seeing how long it would take to ice a martini, stick it in crushed ice and not touch it and see when it would hit the, get the extra ounce of water content in it. And 40 minutes would go by and you'd be like, <laughs> oh, look, I have a martini now. It's like you really literally cannot... If you have the right tools, you can build all your stirred-up drinks. And then you move into um, shaken drinks, uh, always starting with citrus first. So lemon and lime, because you don't have to clean jiggers in between citrus. So let's say you have, a, for argument's sake, a daiquiri and a Tom Collins. So you have a daiquiri. You, you do your, We did, at Milk and Honey, we did scant one lime to three-quarter sugar. So scant one lime, three-quarter sugar. Uh, scant one lime, then you move to your lemon, three-quarter ounces of lemon. Then you have simple syrup in both. So right now you've built the basis of two drinks, and you haven't had to clean, you know, any anything really. So, uh, you know, lime, lemon, sugar, sugar. Then you move to spirit, and from there you can... Move from vodka to anything. And then you can move from gin to, I mean, bourbon. Like, 
you're, you're not throwing off the balance of anyone's drink if you, you know, pour two ounces of gin into a tin and then use the same jigger for bourbon. You're never going to really. And you can go from white rum to dark rum, and then there's a whole series of modifiers in between there that you can really, you can build an entire round without really cleaning all that much, mm. which was, Sasha was emphatic about all bars should be dry hands bars. Like, he hated that bartenders would stick their hands in water all the time, um, which I agree with. Um, but we had these wonderful... The, I actually... We had them on Eldridge Street, and they're hard to find because nobody really makes them, and when you find them, they're almost always not the right measurements. But um, uh, there's this company called American Metalworks, and they make three-quarter, one-ounce jiggers, and it's literally the jigger I use to train people. Mm. Like, I will immediately... Like, once they're, you know... I I still use them during service because I like them so much, but they're essentially all of your sh- sweeteners and all of your uh, citrus can be done with. All the in-betweens. Yeah, and it's... They're, yeah, I mean, I have like four of them that are actually accurate. What's amazing is the process you just explained is all going behind your eyes after I just order a round of drinks like half off my head with a bunch of friends and you're doing all of that within under five minutes. It, I mean, it's just incredible just to hear the process and the, the thought and the lessons that go into just a round of drinks. Yeah, I mean, it's the... The training is... The order of operations is really everything. Um, and I also like the quote that's in the book from Harry Caddick. Caddick is quickly while it's still laughing at you as a way to drink your drinks. The other amazing insights in the book is how drinks got approved. It seemed to be not arbitrary, but uh, not any type of guarantee. Uh, The Debbie Don't was done uh, in a night, the Deep Blue Sea as well, but the 38 Special took over a month. What was the process of getting a drink approved by Sasha, and where did it begin? Um... I mean, it was always, it was as much by Sasha as it was amongst your peers. I mean, we all looked, I mean, we all spent a lot of time tasting stuff that people were working on. And I mean, there were drinks that, I mean, very rarely did I ever, I think there's only one drink I can think of that I like made one time and was like, worked on after that and was like, I really just like the first one better. But, um, I mean, it was just a lot of workshopping and yeah, it's when you're working with a very minimal set, when you're not working with infusions or, you know, a thousand different kinds of bitters, which is the way I really like to work. I think you have to work. I think when you don't have an entire arsenal of like things that are flavored or do crazy syrup prep like that was just never what milk and honey was about and it's never really been like my thought process on how to make drinks but I think it makes you work a little bit smarter in how you go to achieve the flavor of things and a lot of them are like just riffs on something that are classics um but yeah, there was that great quote in the, bo- the book about the Petrovsky family twist. Inspiration lies in the smallest variation. Absolutely. So when submitting this to Sasha, did you have to psych yourself up? Did other bartenders have to do it? Or was it just, would he come in and say, hey, what are you working on? Or what was the submission process? Um, I mean, it was more like I would hand him something and be like, 
taste this, and he'd be like, what is it? I'd be like, just drink it. <laughs> Tell me what you think. Um, Don't ask any questions. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was playing around with this Gimlet variation called the Clarkson. We got uh, this product called Capaletti in, which is essentially kind of like... I always jokingly call it like a bottled Americano. Um, it's like 17% alcohol. It's wine-based. It kind of is vermouthy, but it's got a little bit more bitterness. Kind of almost as like if Aperol met really light vermouth. Um, it's great. But I was just playing around with this Gimlet variation that he really liked. And um, I just gave him one one day and he was like, oh, this is good. I was like, okay, cool. Um, but I mean, the... We, we played around with so much stuff, and anytime it was more like the difficulty was with something that was... Like, I remember we were working on... Uh, we were doing a, a coconut syrup, which, like, a lot of people take Coco Lopez and, you know, do it that way. And I was... There's a... Most syrup prep within the family of the Sasha bars are done almost identically, um, but... Coconut was one of those weird ones that, like, you know, no one really had, like, a stock recipe for it. So I started playing with a new one, and we just went through, like, that was one where we just... I remember spending, like... He'd be like, why did you do this? Did you do this? <laughs> Saline was a weird one. We started... Mm. Saline's, like, a really nice tool to have. Like, literally, we were doing five parts... I think it was... Ten parts... Five to one water to salt, I think is right. And it, there was, like, this, like the longest conversation about why that was what we were going to do. And I remember being like, well, cause you know, it roughly works in the same way we use bitters in it. And he was just like, well, that's not really an answer. He was like, why are we doing it this way? Mm -hmm. And I was like, he was always, there was always more of a conversation. If you answered things too quickly, like you always had to have had, you've always, you always had to have shown that you had given things a lot of thought. And I, I'm definitely one to be like, well, I did it because this guy's like this. And he's like, well, why? And it's like, oh, yeah, right. right. You know, even, even the addition of the, uh, the saline recipe, <laughs> as it is um, in the book, um, had a lot of back and forth between, uh, between myself and the bartenders. There was a camp that wanted it included and a camp that said, this has no business in here. But, but it was part of the bar, and uh, there was... Uh, a good strong camp that was all for it. So I said, you know what? This is a democratic process. We're <laughs> putting this all together as things were, as a um, kind of uh, stepping back into the time of of the milk and honey bars and you know, feeling like you're going through a, a really great cocktail party full of these wonderful drinks and uh, the most memorable ones that are in there. And some of those do have that uh, sailing in it. No, it's amazing. I mean, giving away the kind of base syrups and the way that they're from the very beginning is such a great and how they're called back throughout the book as well. The final part of the cocktail process was in the naming, which it said it either had to be after its parent or something that has a story. Were cocktails named on the spot? Did it get approved? And they said, come back with me in a name for a few days or how did that process work? It took a while uh, to, uh, to get a cocktail named because uh, you did have to have that backstory. Um, I recall the uh, the drink that Richie Bocato had created for me at Milk and Honey, uh, the Water Lily. Um, it was my favorite drink for many years, and, and I say that as I couldn't walk into any of Sasha's bars without, within three minutes, having one put in front of me. 
you know, sometimes a girl just wants to have a Negroni, <laughs> not an option. <laughs> but the water lily, um, Richie was looking for a, uh, a drink for me to have as my signature drink, go in all the time, and that was it. And I, I told him, well, I, I wanted something with a gin base, and I'd, I'd prefer if it uh, had a, a violet taste as well. My grandmother used to carry violet candies with her, and I wanted a drink that, that felt like that. He says, all right, uh, what's your middle name? Uh, Lillian. He goes, all right, give me a week. I come back. He slides the coupe towards me. Taste this. And he puts in front of me this absolutely exquisite drink. Um, these ice flows on the top, just like lily pads, <laughs> in this beautiful uh, pale green lavenderish drink. I tasted it. It was, it was my grandmother's candy. It was a Proustian moment of involuntary memory in a glass. And I said, well, what are you going to call it? He says, well, I was thinking the water lily. And just a, just a perfect name for it. Amazing. Well, we're going to take a quick musical break, and then we're going to be back to talk about the book. This is a track from Fletcher C. Johnson. He recorded this a number of years ago on Snacky Tunes, who has a new record out now on Burger Records, and we will be right back. is stunning that's kind of where i want to start it's so well done and well put together how did you take this book and balance the line of not it being a eulogy to your husband but more of a celebration uh essentially i wanted it to be a liquid memoir um when the when the book was first conceived uh by my husband uh he wanted it to be a home bartending Manual, and he wanted it to be practical. He wanted it to be exactly the size that it is. Uh, he didn't want it to be a coffee table book. He also didn't want um, uh, very uh, cliche pictures of the high pours into crystal coops and whatnot. Um, he felt that that had been a bit overdone. So he wanted something that would uh, transcend time. 
uh, something that would be a serious cocktail book in the leagues of the Savoy cocktail book, but uh, something relevant for today's bartender. Um, he had about two chapters, uh, very much in need of an editrix, and uh, I, I worked with that, but then uh, sitting down the publisher, uh, he said, what are we going to do uh, about this? Maybe we need to completely uh, see, re revision the whole thing. So I said, well, what about we talk to the Barr family? Um, what about something like 25 of the original bartenders can tell all stories from their time behind the bar, what they learned from Sasha as the drinks relate to him and their history. And uh, we can all make this a family effort. Uh, it's it's a celebration, as as much as it is a, a reflection. It it really does come across it, and you would almost think that if he was still here, that this might also be the book that he would have put out because it talks about the family and the community that was built and the ideas that were spawned from one person that spread throughout. And I'm sure. There you have experience as well where you, it was great to relive the memories or, or see the stories or when putting this book together, did you have to sit down and go through the memory banks and, and figure out which stories would best reflect the cocktails that were being presented? Yeah, I mean, I think it's... Um, I The uh, the two drinks I submitted um, were the f first two drinks Sasha's taught us to make, Um uh, taught me to make. Um, they were just sort of like we were opening up the John Dory, and we were doing. We were in the basement of the Ace Hotel because the entire space upstairs was still under construction, um, and we were sort of working out of these like, you know, uh, like essentially people's like pull out tables, and it was not a bar setup at all, and we were. It was. The very beginning idea was, like, these are going to be drinks that are on the menu, but they represent a more important, broader, like, a broader style of drinks. So once you know how to make this, you can swap out this and this and this, and it's this and this and this. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I went through a lot of, I went through a lot of things. I mean, there's a, uh, I, I remember the, f I also talked about the first time that I met Sasha, which was at Little Branch one night, um, which was, uh, like, absolutely crazy experience. Like, I walked out, I literally went, walked down a flight of stairs to go visit a friend, f friend who was working there, and, um, it's, uh, they made him a, he was drinking a Mai Tai, and I, you know, I got introduced, and I just was like, oh, I'll have the same thing, because I was nervous, and I promptly knocked mine over. I <laughs> uh, spilled crushed ice everywhere. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you go through a lot of things, old emails. Yeah, stuff like that. The other element of the book is the graphic illustrations. I know Studio Lynn and Faden worked back with you to do it, I had no confidence in making cocktails before reading this book. I now have adequate confidence That's in wonderful. making cocktails from this book. I mean, it, again, it, it is from those photos and from going into the bars with the 13 ingredients and the 19 garnishes. It does seem a bit insurmountable. But this book really opens it up to people figuring out how they can best do it at home. 
What was the decision process in this? And also, how did you come up with the graphic identity? Because it's so well put together. Faden was wonderful with the, uh, the illustrations for it. Um, they worked with some very talented designers, and um, it, it completely uh, skewed the, the whole idea of, of photography. And we have these simple, beautiful, clean illustrations that shows how the drink can be built. Uh, you can visualize the ratio of spirit to juice, uh, and uh, your garnish, you have a visual for that as well. But uh, you are able to do this by relying on the bookmark that's in there. So you have this legend. So you say, okay, well, this requires egg white. How much egg white? And you, you look next to it, and you see it on the bookmark. I, I wanted that legend to be something that could travel with you instead of just looking back into the, the front interior flap because that creates a lot of confusion and a lot of sticky pages. This way, you just you have your map to your well, cocktail. According to Theo, there will be no sticky hands and no <laughs> dirty hands if you follow this book. <laughs> the other element in this are the guides. Uh, this book is really reminiscent of the Frankie Spantino's cooking manual of if you didn't know anything but you follow these steps, you can become a world-class bartender. What I thought was really interesting is that while most of the guides are at the end, the guide to how to throw your own cocktail party is at the beginning. Why did you place it at the beginning of the book? Uh, and what are some of the lessons that people should be taking away from? I don't ever want to throw a cocktail party again if I have to follow <laughs> these rules because I feel like I'll be um, like undervaluing the, the tradition that needs to be upheld. But why, why the location and, and why so extensive? I wanted the book itself to feel like a cocktail party. And... If you're brought into a cocktail party, you want to know a couple things along the way. So here you have how to do it. Um, throwing a, a successful party at home with beautifully made cocktails was something that was so important to Sasha. And he wanted that to be the foundation of the book originally. So once that was established, then... Now, now we have to talk about uh, what kind of drinks we're going to be serving at this wonderful fete. And after you get to the drinks, there's the other guides. And what really rings through from the book is that he, Sasha had a moral compass that was outside of the bar. Everything from posture to charity to how to live your life to how to um, approach riding a subway car um, to always have your intended measurements on them in case you see something in the window. How much of this did this bleed over to the people that worked with Sasha and the people that knew him, that his influence of a moral guide rubbed off on the people around him? Well, I hope a lot of bartenders are now carrying two handkerchiefs with them. <laughs> but uh, uh, I think uh, with the posture um, and everything, uh, when you present the cocktails, the way the way they're presented is is very important, and that goes along with with you know standing at a certain degree. And I think, uh, Thea, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, a, a lot of Sasha's philosophies were just absorbed so easily just so natural at, at the bar yeah I mean you, it even uh, carried over into like just every day I remember uh, Sasha and I were meet we were meeting at uh, this coffee shop in Tribeca years ago it was I I'm, yeah years and like you know veteran walks by 
pretty typical New York situation sign whole thing and Sasha gave him like all of the cash out of his pocket and it was just like that was what Sasha did and you know we then went and got coffee and like he was like oh that was that was all my cash and I was like I got I got, I got coffee um, but he was just an extremely generous person when you got like he was very quiet but extremely generous and yeah and the final guide in the book is drinks for cats. <laughs> um, where did this come from? How was this concept developed? Oh, uh, my husband, uh, if, if it were up to my husband, um, uh, every cat in the world would have a home, a good home, and be uh, eating and drinking out of coops. And uh, <laughs> uh, he he adored cats, and he he wanted to actually have a section in the book Cocktails for Cats. Um, it's pretty much published uh, as I found it. Um, uh, the funny thing is, is that there there are now no cocktails for cats. But um, his intentions were, it would involve an aerator. These cocktails. Um, it would it would essentially be uh, uh, catnip uh, uh, in in a. In a context, did he ever uh, have you making any cocktails for cats? Theo? I I remember being at Milk and Honey on Twenty Third Street, and he came back. I was like doing, you know, whatever. It was like early in the day, though, and he came back, and he was like, "So I have this idea," and he hands me like four printed pages that were like the rough idea for cocktails with cats, and I was like. I was like, I was like, is this? I was like, this is gonna be. What are you gonna do with this? Um, and he and it was. I mean, he really did honestly believe that like every cat should have a good home. I remember uh, my dad gave me this like very beautiful copper like serving dish that you would like roast a whole fish in. And I was like, I was like, I don't remember how it came up, but I was like, I don't have no idea what to do with it. He's like, how big is it? And he's like, you should put your, your oh, the food bowls in the water for your, for your cat, because I have two cats. He's like, put your food bowls in your water for your cats in it. Be very nice. And it was like, just like, and it's what is not has been done with it. Um, we would we would be having lunch at John Dory, and um, so he trained the uh, the bar staff at John Dory, and he never asked for any payment. Um, he only asked for an open tab there. So we would have to find our, ourselves uh, eating through X amount of seafood every single week, uh, which, which was fine. The oysters are wonderful, and the cocktails, they're not so shabby either. Uh, so we would, we would order the seafood, and um, sometimes uh, there would be a special on the menu, uh, particularly the fortune lobster, which it's, it's an amazing little lobster. It's in season for about a month. It's got a, a, as long a season as ramps do. And, and so it's just as precious. Uh, every bite of this lobster tastes like the first bite of mm-hmm. lobster you've ever had. And, uh, Sasha would, uh, take a little bit of foil that he brought from the bar and he'd take a little of the lobster put it in the foil pack, slip it into his guayabera, and bring that home for the cat. Um, many of his guayaberas had these little butter stains in the pockets from bringing home treats for the cat. <laughs> he, he, he would bring Maggie to the bar every once in a while, too, and people would be like, 
Is that a cat? And you'd be like, no. It's not Ab- a cat. Absolutely not. That would be a giant DOH violation. Um, well, I want to thank you two for joining me on the show today. The book is stunning. Uh, it's really also great that the way that every few pages you might see a Sasha quote or you might even see an essay. It's just very well put together. And I think anyone who is an amateur, not even an amateur like me, or is a professional will really love the book. I want to end on a quote that says from Sasha. It says, if you don't understand why, that's okay. <laughs> Thanks for joining me. The book is out in Fade and Press. Please pick it up. Um, we will be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. Thank you for listening. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>